So I, as with a great pleasure, I get the chance, the honor, to introduce Dr. Frank McGrew, who um, really uh, is synonymous with both Stern Cardiology as well as Baptist. Uh, Dr. McGrew initially is from uh, Charleston, West Virginia, right? So, right. But um, ended up going to Johns Hopkins and then Case Western for both undergrad and then medical school, and then finished his residency and fellowship training at Duke. He uh, was involved in their first PA program, which I know those were developing at the time, has been in Memphis uh, for a while since then, began with Stern Cardiology and has been their director of clinical research since then. He has ongoing uh, academic appointments with Duke, obviously UT, as well as Baylor, and um, has published more things than probably everyone in this room and out in the atmosphere put together. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to just give a warm welcome to Dr. McGrew. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Can, can everyone hear me okay? <clears throat> I'm going to talk about treatments for systolic congestive heart failure. Uh, in our parlance, that means the ejection fraction is, is under 40% or 35%, depending on uh, uh, which reference you want to use. Um, normal is 55 or greater, so it's not 100 for those of you non-cardiologists. So most of these treatments are going to be for systolic heart failure, which only accounts really for about half the congestive heart failure we see. About half is um, due to diastolic dysfunction or stiff ventricles rather than weak ventricles. So... Over the years, I've had an interest in the developments of uh, how to treat uh, congestive heart failure, and it's been um, uh, kind of a long journey, and we're only partway there, as I'll show you. A lot of our therapies for heart failure are too late. Patients already have a bad ventricle. They're not targeted. They're shotgun therapy. You know when we have, like, six different medicines to treat something like systolic heart failure, we don't truly understand the, the fundamental uh, underlying mechanism of it. And it's kind of a shotgun approach. We haven't really gotten to personalized medicine yet. This, uh, for the youngsters here, is an iron lung. It was the way that we used to treat polio. And uh, actually, as a medical student, I had to work one of these on a couple patients. Um, my pediatric instructor at that time was Fred Robbins, who also happened to be the dean at Western Reserve. Fred was an intern at Boston Children's and confessed that he never really got the knack of twisting the dials just right to make the ventilation appropriate for these patients. Basically, they were enclosed in an airtight chamber with a bellows that expanded their, their chest by suction. That's the way they breathe, and they'd have a mirror to look out at the rest of the world. It's a terrible way, but it was the only way to survive if you had polio involving your phrenic nerve and diaphragm function. Um, Fred said as an intern that uh, he thought there's got to be a better way. So he devoted his early career to culturing the polio virus in uh, mouse kidney cells. I'm sorry, uh, monkey kidney cells. And from that, it was an easy path to develop the, uh, the Salk vaccine. Uh, Salk's son was actually one of my residents, too, but Fred went on to get the Nobel Prize for this work. Uh, so I've, I've kind of seen what I call iron lung technology from the very inception. And, and as I look back on what I learned as a fellow, that, in cardiology, that was really iron lung stuff. And I think 10, 15 years from now, we'll look back on what we're doing now and say that's kind of iron lung generation too. So we have a long way to go. So I'm just going to skip through quickly some of the treatments for heart failure. Some of these are fairly new. Some have been around for several decades. 
beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, aldosterone antagonists, neprilysin inhibitors, uh, uh, vabradine, which is a mystic medicine that slows heart rate in a way we don't understand. Digitalis has been around since 17, well, it's been around for hundreds of years. William Withering described digitalis as the active ingredient in a potion that they use to treat dropsy. And then hydrolysis nitrates are specifically good for African-American patients, a therapy that is woefully underutilized everywhere. And, and I'm proud to say, really, that every one of these was studied in a clinical trial here in our group. So if you're a part of that, you had the opportunity to get therapies several years before they were available to the general public. There are some rhythm treatments you can do for heart failure, too. And also here, we've done almost all these trials here. Defibrillators to prevent sudden death from uh, uh, ventricular arrhythmias, which are unpredictable. And without a defibrillator, if you have a low ejection fraction, your death rate can be 6, 7, 8% per year uh, without anything to herald that event. Uh, resynchronization or three or four lead, three lead pacemakers that pace two sides of the ventricle. We did a lot of fundamental work in that area. And, and ablation now plays a role in heart failure therapy too. Several new trials show that doing uh, atrial fib ablation can treat or prevent heart failure. And even uh, doing an ablation to prevent PVCs is one of the newer ways to treat heart failure too. We only have a couple medicines for atrial arrhythmias and heart failure, amiodarone and also dofetilide. Uh, we actually have published a lot on using low-dose amiodarone as a very successful therapy for uh, atrial fib. For valvular disease, uh, our valve clinic has done tremendous work in treating aortic stenosis uh, with a catheter-based modality. In fact, the pendulum is swinging so far that uh, probably in a few years, the majority of people will get this rather than surgical aortic valve replacement. We also have the mitral valve clip, which is available for an ever-widening uh, group of patients with mitral insufficiency. Um, we're still working on the tricuspid valve and so forth. Um, and then we have transplantation, which is a good way to treat heart failure, but because of donors, only available about 2,500 patients uh, uh, per year in the United States and is fraught with problems for uh, post-surgery uh, rejection, uh, inadequate lipid management because of drug interactions and so forth. And then we have LV assist devices, kind of artificial hearts. Uh, all these are costly, and, and while they have their place, there's got to be a better way in the future uh, to treat people. We can also prevent heart failure uh, by preventing atherosclerosis, which accounts for about, in this part of the country, uh, at least half of all heart failure. Statins are miracle drugs. They lower cholesterol, and they reduce inflammation, which can be an even bigger role in, in atherosclerosis than we ever appreciated. We just finished a study called Cantos, where we used a... Uh, an antibody that blocked interleukin-6, which is a precursor of C-reactive protein. And we gave it as a vaccine to people every three months after an MI if they started off with an elevated CRP. And it had a dramatic reduction in recurrent heart attacks. It also seemed to prevent lung cancer, too, for that matter. And then we did the fundamental trials of the PCSK9 inhibitors. That's a monoclonal antibody to lower LDL cholesterol. And that cuts cholesterol in half just within four weeks. Uh, the problem there has been uh, financial access to it, but it's a, it truly is a miracle drug. So the rest of the time I'm going to talk about some other new therapies uh, off-label uh, because they're new, cell therapy, gene therapy, and then uh, the newest thing is gene identification and modification. Uh, we are just really beginning, we're just in the infancy of, of doing that now. It's a very exciting time. 
Well, what about stem cells? Uh, the heart was regarded as a terminally differentiated organ. That term means that it can't get better after the cells die. In contrast to, say, the liver or the kidney, which sometimes, like the uh, missing leg of a frog or tadpole, can grow back. Uh, the heart actually has resident stem cells. They're just not very many, and they're hard to excite to get going. Um, we're working on that. Uh, skeletal muscle actually has stem cells in the periphery of each muscle bundle that can be used to inject in the heart and to um, potentially grow new tissue. That was our first foray into stem cells. That was the first uh, project we had. Uh, that was started by Dr. Menache in France, who really was one of the pioneers in stem cell therapy. Notably, he's kind of moved on from stem cells to sheets of tissue that you put on like a big Band-Aid, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the skeletal muscle source for uh, stem cells, which you culture up um, uh, in vitro, turned out to be proarrhythmic for reasons we don't understand, so that's at least temporarily been abandoned. We were taking biopsies of the leg muscle sending it off to Michigan to grow in a big garbage can with a special formula to suck out the cardiac uh, precursor cells in that skeletal muscle. Um, then adipose tissue. Uh, you can actually get uh, plastic surgery in the Bahamas to remove adipose tissue, and they'll inject it right down your coronaries if you'd like. Um, no one much is doing that in a clinical trial, but there were early trials doing that without much processing. So you can imagine all the stuff that went down the coronaries then. Uh, there really are precursor mesenchymal cells in adipose tissue that when properly identified and harvested can be used for uh, cell therapy for the heart, but that's not one of the major uh, thrusts right now. Um, embryonic stem cells sound good, uh, but have, there have been several barriers to that. The first is the um, ethical problem of getting embryo stem cells. But even beyond that, those cells are too early in the differentiation. They have the potential for turning into anything. And when they were first studied, uh, injected into the heart, instead of getting heart muscle growing up, you get hamartomas and toenails and things like that grow because those cells will grow into different things to a certain extent depending on their local environment where they're injected. So right now, that's not used very much, but with uh, gene modification I'll talk about, that could be the wave of the future if there's a way to uh, acquire that ethically. And then uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. The people at Stanford have been really on the forefront here. They've taken actually fibroblasts from the skin in adults and de-differentiated those so that they are kind of embryonic in their character. And they can be uh, molded into uh, uh, a milieu where they'll grow into uh, myocardial cells or to endothelial cells. And furthermore, they can be used uh, in vitro to study a patient's response to a new therapy before you actually give it to the patient. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, so how do stem cells function? Well, they don't function by rapidly dividing into millions more of the same thing you inject. If you inject 100 stem cells into a heart, uh, a few months later, you may find just a few. And we can radioactively label those to be sure of that. But in most studies, those initial stem cells do cause benefit. And the mechanism of that is not totally understood. 
but it's pretty sure it's not from massive uh, replication of those original stem cells, which of course was the hope of people when they started this uh, type of investigation. Uh, they do, however, uh, work in other ways, and we'll talk about that. No one really understands the relative contribution in most cases of these different mechanisms, but they can trigger the in situ stem cells that occur in the heart. There aren't very many, but they can cause those to replicate and divide. They can reduce inflammation, and they can modify existing scars by helping it heal. And uh, in some uh, animal experiments, you can actually show that they hook up with existing uh, myocardial cells, both electrically and mechanically, to improve contractility. That's not always the case, but in some. This, uh, I don't know if it shows well in the back, this is sort of a panoramic view of stem cells since uh, 2000. Originally, we used myoblasts, that's skeletal muscle cells, and that didn't work out too well. Uh, then we went to bone marrow. Initially, they just used straight bone marrow without any processing. That didn't work so well either. And then they realized that uh, there were the cells within the bone marrow, the mesenchymal cells, many of them will have surface antigens that identify uh, their future fate. And there, there are different uh, protocols for different people. Our study happened to use a CD45 and a CD90 cell, but everybody has a little bit different concept of what the magic cell is. Um, but the modern techniques will try to identify uh, a subset of cells and use those to be injected in the heart to get a more pure effect from it. And then um, we talked about adipose tissue not being used too much currently, but with appropriate uh, uh, antigen identification of what's in it, perhaps that'll work. And then there, uh, there's a group at Cedars-Sinai that uh, takes a myocardial biopsy from a patient and uh, processes it in a special way so you can get, they call them, call them uh, cardiospheres, little BBs of myocardial uh, cells, and then re-injects those after they've been cultured in vitro for a while. Uh, that, that's still in its infancy. Some preliminary work there looks pretty good. Um, the uh, developers of that technique hope that uh, instead of each patient having to have a heart biopsy and then culture for two weeks, then be re-injected, that maybe they can take a, a single common donor and process it in a way to be useful for many, many patients, which we're going to talk about how we do uh, bone marrow the same way in our studies. And there have been different ways of trying to enhance how the cells engraft. Engraftment is the term they use for the, the cells that you inject staying there and growing and perhaps linking up with existing uh, myocardial cells. There have been different things to try to change engraftment, but shock waves, uh, ultraviolet light, and all kinds of things, but we still don't have the key to that. Um, and then in the future, we talked about embryonic, um, uh, pluripotent stem cells, and then gene therapy and non-coding RNAs. Uh, I'm going to say just a couple words about at the end because uh, that may work too. And to, to further illustrate the promise of this, there are a couple animal experiments where uh, in heart failure models, they took stem cells, but they didn't inject the stem cells. They took the fluid, they call it the liquor, above the stem cells in the Petri dish and got similar effects. So there probably are soluble molecules floating around uh, that leave the stem cells that may be the major cause of how they exert their beneficial effect. 
Well, this is uh, just kind of an overview of within the mesenchymal stem cells in the marrow. You've got a lot of different potential fates they can have, anywhere from myogenesis, adipose, uh, bones, or to blood vessels. And you can modify those according to the milieu that you put those. Uh, just kind of the same thing. Uh, these are mesenchymal stem cells, and what happens to them when you inject them? Well, they can stimulate endogenous stem cells that are in the heart to grow. Uh, they can uh, themselves differentiate into uh, myocardial cells. That's probably a minority fate for them. And then it's clear that they have paracrine effects, where that means they uh, synthesize and secrete uh, either exosomes, RNA, DNA, and so forth, to cause the local environment to do better and to heal better. And there are various ways of showing how inflammation gets better with that. Uh, kind of another way of showing the same thing, it's hard to read, but it just shows that these mesenchymal stem cells can become blood vessels, uh, they can activate endogenous repair, and they can change into perhaps cardiac stem cells too. Uh, there are certain stem cells in the heart where their fate is not to be another uh, contractile cell, but to basically form a healing scar. And that's shown here in this slide. With appropriate activation, you can get scar formation, which obviously to a certain point is helpful in recovery from acute myocardial infarction. In those cases, those cells uh, are stimulated to turn into fibroblasts. So we take uh, cells, usually from the bone marrow, and uh, inject them into the heart, and I'll show you how we do that. Uh, and uh, also, there is an endogenous population in all of us every day of uh, stem cells that leave your bone marrow and move to different parts of your body wherever there's injury, and that can be somebody with an acute MI. One of our early stem cell experiments, uh, or clinical trials, let's say, was to take uh, stem cells and inject them intravenously into patients who'd had an MI with the preceding two days. That uh, had a very minor uh, effect on improving injection fraction. So that, that technique, I don't think, has been adapted uh, for further use. And we talked about embryonic stem cells. They're similar to pluripotent stem cells. And if you can, uh, with appropriate environment, program them to differentiate into cardiac cells, that's even better. Uh, this is the uh, pluripotent stem cells I mentioned. You can actually get those if you know how to do it from the skin fibroblast. And you can use those as implants. That's been done primarily in animal models. But it's been used actually in humans to study drug response. This, I guess you can't read it from the back. But the, uh, the top part of this just shows conventional drug discovery. So you have a sick person. You look at their DNA. You come up with what you think is the magic... Uh, uh, medicine, stem cell, or whatever, and then you give it to them and see how they do. And that's been the way we've done it for eons. A newer way is to take that patient, look at their DNA, come up with a treatment, uh, molecule, stem cells, or whatever, and put it into a Petri dish with their pluripotent stem cells and see how they behave when exposed to that new treatment. And then if it's favorable to that particular patient, then you give it to the patient. And that will help reduce some of the... Uh, heterogeneous response to different treatments that we now see no matter what it is, whether it's gene therapy or a, uh, a molecule itself. So uh, stem cells have promise, and I'll show you a clinical trial we did in a minute that seems to, to work quite well. But also gene therapy uh, has promise too, 
And in many ways, it's an easier therapy if we could just perfect it. The first trial that we did, uh, there's a gene called, uh, an enzyme, excuse me, called Circa. It's kind of right in the middle of the contractile apparatus, which I won't show you because it's so, it looks like Hillary Clinton's plan for health care. It's got so many lines going back and forth. Um, we're going to skip that, and I'll just, just take my word for it that Circa is an important enzyme right in the heart of contractility of your heart. And if you measure it, it's low or deficient in the vast majority of people with systolic heart failure. So theoretically, if you can give more of that, you'll get more contractility. Another enzyme you're more familiar with, adenylcyclase, produces cyclohan P, which produces the energy source ATP. Uh, this is a trial that's about to start, we're trying to get into. We're going to look at a different enzyme. So, now the way that works is we take a, uh, an adenovirus that's in the family, a particular adenovirus, in the family of the adenovirus that causes a common cold. This virus is not infectious. And to make it even safer, we strip out the viral nuclear material within the viral protein shell. And then we put in this human gene, in our case, it was a circuit gene. And then I'll show you, we inject it down the coronaries and it infects the endothelial cells, which causes new circuit to be synthesized. Uh, the first trial with this uh, was neutral, probably for several different reasons we're still learning. One is that about half the patients have antibody titer against the whole panel of adenoviruses, whether it's infectious or not. So we had to check it in those, and uh, in Memphis, about half the people have that titer. In Poland, 90% of the people have that titer. So that doesn't work for everybody. And then furthermore, uh, it was everybody's best guess how many viral particles to give. No one really knows. So the second time, hopefully, we do this, we're going to give more of them. We also don't know, perhaps you need to retreat. It's a little simplistic to think you're going to get away with one squirt. Um, so this is the way it's done. It just, you just do a regular heart cath, and you put the catheter down uh, the coronary arteries, all three, and inject the viral particles, uh, and they go on downstream, and I'll show you how they infect. Uh, one group actually put these retrograde up the coronary sinus, but that's, that's a minority way to do it. So this is what happens within the artery. You've got the viral particles moving downstream. They lock on to an endothelial cell. They squirt the uh, DNA into it, and that DNA causes new protein to be formed, which goes out into the myocardium and hopefully makes it stronger. Um, so that's gene therapy. I'm going to come back a little bit to stem cells, and I'll tell you a little bit about gene therapy too, but that's kind of all we've done so far. Stem cells are kind of ongoing. The two different ways to do stem cells, you can do autologous, which means you take the patient's own stem cells from their bone marrow and process them in special ways to get the uh, subselective cell types you want, or you can take uh, allogeneic cells, and that means you take a single donor and you render those cells immunologically incompetent, and that way you can use it in a 1,000 people. That has a couple advantages. It's much cheaper. You can store those on the shelf. And furthermore, um, uh, it's quicker, too. And also, perhaps most importantly, this is a young person we get those from. These are the mature people that we're treating. So you may be 70, but your stem cells are 70 also. And uh, there are certain uh, studies that show that they just don't work quite as well if they've been around 70 years. 
So the younger donors probably are the wave of the future. Uh, the, the first trial we did was called the XL, uh, not the ninth, but the XL trial, where we used uh, the patient's own stem cells with bone marrow harvest, mailed to Michigan, grown in uh, mysterious circumstances where certain cell types were isolated and uh, multiplied, sent back to us, and then we injected them into the heart, and I'll show you how we did that. The uh, uh, results of that trial were very interesting, uh, and I'll show you a graph. People actually lived longer if they got the stem cells. It's true the numbers are not real great, but uh, statistically it worked out okay. The interesting thing is that the, um, the functional improvements, like exercise time and ventricular volumes, their improvement was much less impressive. And we see that in other things we do too, like resynchronization pacemaker therapy. We'll often see dramatic clinical improvement without a change or a huge change in ejection fraction. So there's just a lot we don't understand. So how do we get the stem cells in the heart? Well, we use a special catheter called the NOGA catheter, which the Baptist Foundation was kind enough to uh, supply to us through a very generous grant. And uh, basically, you identify the viable parts of the myocardium in the left ventricle, and then you inject at about 25 sites all the stem cells that you've received. Um, earlier uh, techniques use a direct epicardial injection and so forth. Uh, and this technique can be used for dilated cardiomyopathy where you don't have myocardial infarction. This trial I'm telling you here called the XMyCell trial, and that's basically their brand name for how they process the cells. Uh, and that was only for patients with coronary disease as a source of their heart failure. There are certain aspects of that that might make it better or perhaps less likely to respond, and we'll go into that later. And this was perspective, and it was double-blind. Even the people injecting the stem cells didn't know whether they had real stem cells or the, the placebo injection, and everybody got an injection. So there was no placebo effect from the procedure itself. And this is the survival curve. This is survival here. The people getting the stem cells lived longer than those that didn't. And this is the first clinical trial to ever show improved survival with stem cells. So as of right now, um, the, uh, it looks like that most of the future is going to involve uh, mesenchymal stem cells uh, processed in a special way. And uh, probably we're going to go to common donors for that, which means we need to take their cells and process them so their surface antigens are rendered uh, inoperable so they won't create an immune response. So you'll take these cells from a young, healthy donor, process them in a way they don't have immune stimulation, then you expand them in culture uh, many, many fold. And that way they'll be useful for uh, thousands of people. And uh, this is called the Noga catheter. This is a, uh, the left ventricle here. This is the catheter. And just say this patient has a scar right here. You don't want to put the stem cells in the scar. You want to put it in viable tissue. So this Noga catheter is really very uh, sophisticated. And not only has a little needle for injecting stem cells, but when you touch the myocardial wall, you actually get an electrical signal, which confirms viability. And then it has a mechanical sensor, so it can detect contractility of that wall. So this gives us a double way to ensure that where we're injecting the stem cells is a good, potentially healthy target rather than in a scar. The very first trial we did using the uh, skeletal stuff, the company wanted us to inject the scar, and we finally had a riot and convinced them that wasn't going to work, so we did that. Um, 
We just completed enrollment uh, December 31st on this autologous stem cell trial, in other words, from a common donor. And that data is being analyzed now. The conduct of the trial was smooth. We had no side effects. Uh, the risk of that Noga catheter injection is uh, like one-tenth of one percent of a problem. Um, and these are the endpoints we're looking at in this trial. We don't have the data yet. Uh, one of the things we're doing differently is looking at genetics of, the, of all the patients in there, seeing if there are certain uh, genotypes that may respond better or worse to the therapy. So um, in the movie The Graduate, they told Dustin Hoffman the future was plastics. And, and I'll tell you today, I think the future is genetics. Uh, and I'll go into that in more detail, but uh, our shotgun approach to treating everybody the same <clears throat> is the iron lung way. Uh, we're going to get better. So if you can target a specific gene, uh, you're going to do a lot better. Uh, it's more precision medicine. This slide doesn't show well, but basically it shows, it's called the levels of intervention for genetic cardiomyopathies. We do know that a fair number of cardiomyopathies have specific gene problems. Well, if we don't know what they are, then we use a shotgun here with beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and so forth. If we learn a little bit more, we may get to um, renolazine, which kind of blocks certain, or in open certain channels within the myocardium. And if we really know what's going on with that particular patient, we can use uh, adenovirus transducers, RNA interference, uh, myosin inhibitors, and so forth and so on. So we're moving from the shotgun to the uh, precise bullet right there. Um, one of the things that we're just starting to do now is gene modification. Uh, you know, the Jacobin Minode model of uh, DNA RNA was uh, fancy when I was in school, but the, the DNA molecule uh, makes RNA, which then goes on to form proteins. Very simplistic. <clears throat> it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, for one thing, we now actually have therapies where we can bind RNA with, a, with an analog to it, its mirror image, and inactivate it. And we have therapies now actually to treat amyloid like that. And uh, we have a couple, uh, uh, mypomersin is a cholesterol medicine that works in the same way. So these are ways that we can actually block the patient's uh, deleterious RNA uh, to create good things. We're just now learning that. And probably, as we learn more about the genetics of all these different diseases, we're going to be able to prevent or modify ischemic cardiomyopathy. And then we're learning more and more about lipids, about how to prevent it, too. For example, we thought the PCSK9 uh, monoclonal antibodies were great, but right now there's a drug called Inclocerin that actually blocks the synthesis of PCSK9. It doesn't block PCSK9 because it's not formed. You just give that medicine every six months. So... And then we're also learning that the ApoB, which is the protein carrier for the bad cholesterol, probably needs to be a direct target in its own right. So about half of all cardiomyopathies are uh, not due to coronary disease. They're something else. We call them non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. And if you go looking, uh, we think that you can find that a large number of those are genetically um, caused. And because of that, uh, we want to get tailored therapy. To, to treat them. Um, in Europe, and, and here too, but in Europe they published a lot about non-ischemic cardiomyopathies and how the knowledge of what they are can, can transform how you treat them. Just one brief example here. It, if you acknowledge that as of today that 
that we can, uh, cannot identify as an abnormal gene in about half of these people. That's going to get better. Uh, but right now, let's say half. Uh, within the other half, <clears throat> about a quarter of them are miscellaneous, you know, unusual genes, 1% here, 1% there. But then there, there are two that are, that are well known. Uh, Titan is the largest protein in the body. It's part of the contractile apparatus. And that's uh, Titan abnormalities in gene are responsible for a large amount of cardiomyopathy. And the important thing there is most of those people respond pretty well to conventional therapy, those iron lung drugs that I just told you about. But within that, there's another group that have what's called the Lamin gene, which is particularly difficult to treat for a couple different reasons. And if you can target that, which we now can, we now have a clinical trial right here to target that, can make a, a huge difference. Uh, the Lamin gene is a family of genes. It's very complicated. The one we focused on is a gene that causes systolic heart failure. Uh, but there are patients who have a variant of that that have skeletal muscle and myocardial muscle abnormalities too. Um, so it's really potentially complicated. So as I mentioned, if your Titan gene is abnormal, which we can identify, uh, there's a pretty good chance to respond to standard therapy. But if you have the Lamin gene, you won't. And the one thing about the Lamin gene that, that makes it different is that patients not only have systolic dysfunction, but they have conduction abnormalities too, either bradycardia or tachycardia. And uh, that's kind of a double whammy for those people because they have both. Um, and the reason they don't respond well, it's a nuclear defect. It's a bad uh, molecule coming out of the nucleus, not the contractile apparatus. It gets... Uh, impaired. Um, now, from the clinical standpoint, uh, before this trial started with a direct inhibitor of that, the only thing we could do about Lamin, if we identified them, is they'll often present with heart block or bradyard sinus node dysfunction. And so for years, we just put a pacemaker in those people. But then they'd always turn up needing a defibrillator as time went on. So now, if you identify them early, you, if they have bradycardia, just go right to a uh, defibrillator, forget the pacemaker. Um, so I think the hallmark there is if you see a young person uh, with conduction problems without obvious cause, uh, particularly if they're starting to have cardiomyopathy, you want to check for the Lamin gene, which we can do for free. Um, it's autosomal dominant, which makes it even worse. And... Uh, uh, so we have ways now to block that gene so you don't get the bradyarrhythmias, the tachyarrhythmias, and you don't get the contractility uh, failures. Like all genes, it's subject to genetic modification, which can make it either more virulent or worse, and we'll talk just a little bit about that. And the, the way we're treating that is this clinical trial called the ARRAY trial. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, my attempt to show the nucleus producing this bad enzyme that causes harm. And we have a small oral molecule inhibitor for this compound now. Um, so we think, that's why we're doing the trial, we think this can block the uh, bad effects of the Lamin gene. And to get into this trial, uh, patients need to have uh, an ejection fraction, somewhat depressed, just barely, or an elevated pro-BNP, and they have to have some hint of a conduction abnormality. It can be just as minimal as a first-degree AV block with a slightly prolonged PR, or even a family history of cardiomyopathy or sudden death. So if you'll help us screen for this, this, could be, this trial could be life-saving for patients. 
The congenital heart uh, people have gotten into uh, stem cell therapy too. This is an attempt to show a hypoplastic left ventricle. I'm not sure it worked well. But uh, this is a condition in uh, young children that's uh, very difficult to treat because there are RVs there, there are LVs not there. And people have begun to treat that with uh, sheets of stem cells that they've grown uh, in vitro to kind of patch up the left ventricle and to help it grow. That, that stuff's in its infancy. But as you can imagine, the, the, uh, the young patient may have a more appropriate uh, uh, milieu to actually receive and to utilize stem cell therapy too. And then uh, there's some early work that where we identify the genetic defects and we use gene infection and cell injection too, sort of a double whammy. And what I don't have a slide for, the group in Louisville um, has been a pioneer in using multiple cell types when they do the stem cell studies they've been doing. Uh, for example, our big study just used primarily two different stem cells. <clears throat> Dr. Boley there has used a uh, half dozen. And there's a lot of sense to that as long as you think you've got the right ones in your combo. Simpler ways of treating heart failure may be on the horizon. We're part of a big trial here called the Galactic Trial. This is an attempt to show you the contractile apparatus. You know, the basic uh, contraction of the heart is just the sliding myofilaments, acting in myosin moving back and forth. And uh, this is an oral drug that stimulates the speed and force of that sliding of those uh, myofilaments. And it's just an oral drug we give to people with systolic heart failure. And uh, the trial is to see if it works. The pilot trial looks pretty good. So we're actively enrolling people in that trial now. The drug is called omicantyl macarbyl. The molecule is uh, actually smaller than the name. And uh, it's a positive inotrope. Think of it as a digitalis type thing but it doesn't have any of the potential disadvantages that DIGS did. It does not improve, does not enhance oxygen consumption and so forth. Um, and uh, we're getting genetic information in these people to see if there's a particular subtype that may respond. This is just my crude attempt to show you the actin-myosin molecule, how the, the actin and myosin slide against each other that causes the heart to contract and then to relax too. Then, uh, I mentioned to you the uh, resynchronization technique we had. If you have patients with heart failure, um, with a bundle branch block, they're often very successfully treated by putting pacemaker leads in the right ventricle. <clears throat> uh, that's what this is supposed to be here. And then one through the coronary sinus on the epicardial surface of the left ventricle. <clears throat> and by Stimulating those two almost in unison, but not quite. Um, you can improve contractility and clinical status in probably 75% of all the patients who get those. It still leaves 25% we call non-responders. And there are different ways of approaching those. Uh, you you want to make sure your basic pacemaker is working right in all the different leads. You want to make sure that there's no atrial fib messing up your pacing. But still, there's a substantial number that just don't get better. We have a new way now. Um, one of the problems with this coronary sinus lead is you're limited where you can put it by the venous anatomy, the coronary veins. You can't just put it anywhere because that pacemaker wire has to go through the coronary sinus and down a vein. So that limits your targets. Uh, phrenic nerve stimulation limits your targets. Uh, knowledge of where the scar tissue is in the left ventricle is a problem. And then fundamentally, 
If you stimulate the left ventricle from the epicardial surface, which is what this does, uh, in general, you get suboptimal activation sequence. So we now have a clinical trial that we just started, actually, where uh, you put a catheter across the aortic valve. It has a little pacemaker on it, which, if you're really interested, I can't pass it around because they have my passport. Well, I have this. But it's like a piece of lint. And uh, this is put into the left ventricle at the end of a catheter. And then once it's secured, you remove the catheter. So you have this little blurb down here sitting in the left ventricle endocardial surface. It doesn't have a battery. It doesn't have energy in it. It gets ultrasound energy through the chest wall from a little energy source that's uh, implanted uh, intercostal. Uh, there are advantages of this. Number one, you can stimulate where you want to. Number two, you get um, endocardial stimulation. And you can pick any spot you want to get the best geometry for getting your electronic vector between the RV and the LV. So in the pilot trial, this worked well. Um, this basically just shows the uh, ultrasound transducer, which is extra cardiac, just under the skin, sending sound waves into this little pacemaker that receives them on a per beat basis. So it doesn't have to have any battery in it at all. It just gets a sound wave each beat. So that's why it can be very small. And then um, this uh, is a, uh, a topic of interest to me. We've uh, we worked on a dog model of myocardial infarction a few years ago, trying to devise a technique where we could take the latissimus dorsi, uh, which is a muscle in your back that uh, was made by nature uh, to exist only for the use of plastic surgeons, because it doesn't have much function normally, except to help you get out of the chair a little quicker. And we wrapped that around the heart and stimulated it with electric current and it improved contractility. Um, and as kind of part of that, uh, we did some studies, or other people did some studies, where they biopsied the, the part of the animal model of heart failure and found out that in the normal part of the left ventricle, uh, certain genes were uh, existing and were active. <clears throat> in the sick part of the heart, whether it was infarcted or ischemic, you got different genes turned off and on, and probably because the mechanical receptors uh, on the surface of the cell would send signals into the nucleus to make or not make certain proteins. So we're kind of working on a grant now for another animal model of heart failure where we can do biopsies of the uh, left ventricle in different areas and see if certain genes are higher or lower. Actually, the Italians did this in, in humans about five, six years ago, but it's not published anymore to my knowledge. So uh, one of the ways we talked about is to take stem cells and, and give those patients certain drugs to activate the stem cells better, use certain devices to activate them better. There, there was a trial where we used electrical stimulation in the area of myocardial infarction. So far, that hasn't worked well. The other uh, thing that kind of spins in the work we're doing is um, the Human Genome Project. Um, my former chief, uh, Jim Weingarten, actually was head of the NIH, and his fundamental role was to get funding for the human genome. It was done by other people, but he got it started. And we have uh, cooperation with Ohio State, uh, who has a big NIH grant to expand this data. And basically what we do is <clears throat> we take patients with um, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and do a genetic analysis on it, looking at all these different genes. And then... Uh, what we hope to do is to get some additional grant money 
So we can do echocardiograms on their first-order relatives and then do their genetic analysis, too. Uh, they're particularly interested in us because the uh, data from uh, African-Americans is quite limited in this area. And we promised them that probably half of our patient population we put in this trial would, would be African-Americans. So they're very interested in us getting these probands, and we're, we're kind of working out the details with how to get this done. So if you have patients you'd like to have that done, just let me know. It's all free. Um, and then lastly, I'm going to talk about something for which I really know nothing. And, and that's the, um, the concept of non-coding RNAs and the concept of uh, gene uh, uh, inhibition. Uh, this is the uh, human chromosome here, and it's very tightly bound. And if you stretch it out, you can see the DNA. <clears throat> and what I really want to show you here, just the concept of most of the DNA that we have is not accessible for synthesizing RNA. It's covered with a wide variety of proteins, histones and other things. And we just have the barest fundamental knowledge of this. And this is the reason that you can get um, post-conception alteration of your genetic expression. You know, there was a Russian scientist, Lysenko, I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but he was the agricultural expert in, during Stalin. He kept telling Stalin that, that, that a cold winter would modify the corn genetics, you know. Everybody thought he's crazy. Uh, he may have been in that topic, but the, the ability of environment to change how genes are uncovered and how they can express themselves is a whole new area in biology. And we just understand just the very minimum of it. And um, this would explain why two people with the same gene, one of them gets sick, one of them doesn't. And environmental factors, whether it's nutrition in the womb, whether it's smoke exposure, environmental exposure, whatever, diet, they may be able to change the covering on top of your gene to permit it to be uh, active to synthesize proteins. And then there's the whole concept of non-coding RNAs, where they, they are the structure of, of a lot of the genetic material rather than active genes. Genes that form proteins are a relatively small minority of your total uh, uh, chromosome structure. And then lastly, um, there is a, a research study that we started uh, Monday. And if you're interested, I have the uh, more details of it here. But um, imagine that this is a uh, coronary artery uh, with a plaque here. And on top of that plaque is uh, unstable gunk, you know, that causes microthrombi. And, and this may have actually been occluded before a balloon went in there. But in any event, this is an acute MI patient. Well, there's something about the surface of that plaque in an acute MI that's not good. And that's why we give uh, several different antiplatelet agents, give heparin for a while, and so forth and so on. But we'd like to do more. So we have a, a project now where we infuse these patients uh, with a concentrated HDL. And um, on the before the fifth day after their MI, and then weekly three more times. And the feeling is that that uh, super concentrated HDL uh, washing in there will help to smooth out these plaques and remove whatever this thrombogenic coating may be in the early post-infarction milieu. And the rationale of this is that if you look at patients with any kind of MI, STEMI, non-STEMI, uh, the first few months are the, by far the most dangerous time for reinfarction and death. 
And so that's why we're giving this infusion before they leave the hospital and weekly three or four times. Um, so I think that's going to be one way we can prevent heart failure and so forth. So um, thank you for your attendance. And this is an exciting field. As they tell you in medical school, about half what I told you is wrong. We just don't know which half it is. So thanks very much.